Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. You have that passage printed for you in your bulletin, and I'll read just a bit past the verses that are in your bulletin. Some of you actually endure two sermons from me on Sunday morning, so I want to tell you all, relax. I figured out that I read from the NIV in the first service. I had my, uh, my dad's large print Bible, which I was enjoying very much, but somebody told me afterwards it was the, the nearly inspired version, the new NIV, not the ESV. <clears throat> now we're back to where we're supposed to be. And in this chapter, we come to an entirely new chapter in this story of the people of Israel. And uh, Moses makes it very clear in the way he, the way he artistically presents what we have in this chapter. There's no conjunction, there's no transition word like an and or a therefore. You Memphis City Seminary students who may be taking Hebrew will know that as the vav conjunctive or the vav consecutive. It's not here. It just starts out new. And then he also reinforces how beautifully new this is by language that, uh, that approaches in its beauty that of poetry. It's prose, but it's, it's artistically written. Moses is saying God is doing something not only new with His people, but beautifully new. And that same God, working through that same Savior, is doing something beautifully new among us too as the church of Christ. We are grateful for the orthodox faith that we have been given, but it is a beautiful orthodoxy. These laws that will come, these characteristics, these stipulations for the way we are to live are intended that life may go well with us. So that's what God designs what is going to be the motivation for us to obey those laws, to live in that way? That's what we meet with in this passage. We'll begin reading in verse 1, Exodus chapter 19. Hear God's Word. <clears throat> on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God on that mountain, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when, when uh, I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. You shall set limits for the people around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he, he said to the people, uh, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes, open our eyes that are clouded with tears and grief and disappointment or anger or fear, whatever is clouding our vision from seeing you, Lord Jesus, in the gospel, please open our eyes with beautiful, wonderful things from this portion of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Several weeks ago, as you know from the news, the mayor of Seattle ordered the police out of Seattle and a group of protesters took over that that part of the city, the arts area, and they initially called it the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. This past week, I listened to a podcast. A, a man, uh, it's not clear what his political persuasion is. He was truly uh, neutral and objective, and he's just walking around in that, in that area and reporting what he saw. He started by noting some of the beautiful artwork that he had seen on the streets. He saw some conversations that were occurring peacefully in different places. But then he, then he saw some other things as well. He saw a man who was really agitated and, and, and was holding court with a number of people. And he said, who came up with this name Chaz after all? We should change the name to Capitol Hill occupied protest. And somebody else said, no, it should be Capitol Hill uh, organized protest. They were arguing over that. They took a vote and, and apparently one, uh, they at least succeeded in changing from Chaz to Chop, but they're still arguing over what the O stands for. Others uh, uh, were arguing over who best represented their particular activist group, and they were heated about that. The others, they were claiming that the others were co-opting their group, though they were part of the same organization. Others were arguing over the boundaries or the barriers and so forth. 
It caused me to think about, through history, uh, other utopian experiences or experiments. That's what, it, what this is, is a utopian experiment, an idea that we can come together and we can determine who's going to be in the core of something and, uh, and filter who comes in and out, and we can achieve some degree of perfection. I looked back with some help of scholars over to utopian, over utopian experiments since the 14th century. I didn't look at every one, obviously, but some of the highlights. And I was, I was interested if, if they had common denominators. Now, this one's not hard to figure out. One common denominator of why utopian experiments have never, ex, had never succeeded is because in a utopian experience, experiment, you're, you're trying to create perfection. The problem is as soon as you move into a, a utopia, you've messed it up. And then the, but the other thing that characterizes utopian experiments is that they're usually defined on what they are against more than what they are for. And nothing that is ever established on the basis merely of what you are against ever works, it never lasts. It doesn't cause flourishing or success. In other words, you, you can't just be against, you can't develop a healthy diet just by being against candy. And you can't, you can't uh, develop a, a great football team just by being against one enemy. I can tell you from a lifetime experience of experience that that doesn't work. And you can't, you, you can't build a church by just saying we are against this. You can't build a denomination. You can't build a movement you can't live a flourishing life just by what you are against. Now, we must be against things. The Bible tells us frequently, as, this, as uh, chapters uh, 19 through 24 will, will lay out in, 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 in clear lines what we are to be against, all of that which is not of God, we must be against. But God does not merely tell us what He is against he, without ever reminding us, without always reminding us, you're against that because you are for me. One old preacher used to call this strategy the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what the gospel is. The gospel expels that which is negative in us and in society by replacing it with a greater love. What we're called to as Christians is not merely to be against things. What we're called to is to be for a kingdom in which Christ is the head. He is the Lord. He is the king. We call the characteristics of that kingdom shalom, peace. There's, there's a passage that we love to quote around here that our Previous pastor Sandy Wilson emphasized a lot from Jeremiah 29 that when, when the people of Israel were taken into exile in Babylon, he didn't tell them, I want you to just hide behind your walls and just keep that bad culture from getting inside of you. He said instead, I want you to live fully. I want you to, to give your sons and daughters in marriage. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. And I want you to pray for the peace the shalom of the city. For what city? The city of Jerusalem? No, the city that you're in. You say, that's just, that's just rubbish, that's naive. But God answered that prayer. They prayed for that peace, and shalom came. 
to Babylon, even in the time of Daniel. Even the king was saved. It's not permanent, but it's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's what we're after too. We are after pursuing the shalom of God. In our lives, in our own personal relationship with God through, through the reconciling work of Christ, but the shalom of God in our families, the shalom of God in our city, and the manner with which we will pursue it is counterintuitive love. Our goal is shalom, and the manner with which we pursue it is counterintuitive love, and it is in response to the first love of God through a Savior. That's the point, the two points I want to make. The forms of, those, of that love, the form of that first love from God our Savior. What are we responding to? What, are we, what motivates us to, to obey and pursue shalom? It is redemption and revelation. Look at it in verses 1 through 8. Redemption. God calls us to respond in obedience to his redeeming love. Moses starts sort of startlingly in the verse 1. There's no and, it's just on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. He gives us the time and then he gives us the place where he begins this new work. Now, why does he do that? It's not just to give us a place to mark on a calendar. We don't know where Mount Sinai was. There are a whole lot of mountains in the Sinai Peninsula. There, and, and there's probably a reason that God doesn't give us the coordinates for where Mount Sinai is. It's so that we don't get hung up on where the mountain is. He just wants us to remember that he has fulfilled his promise to bring his people to a mountain. Because you remember, go back to Exodus chapter 3 when God is calling Moses to be uh, the one who would go into Egypt and redeem, be the agent of redemption for his people. He says, he says to Moses, I want you to go there. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then I'm going to lead them out of Egypt. I'm going to lead them to a mountain where they can worship. He may as well have told Moses, I want you to board a rocket ship and go to Mars. Because Moses is thinking, don't you, don't you know that Pharaoh is in charge? Most powerful man on the planet? Okay, it's one thing to be called if you get us out of Egypt, but don't you know how, clo- how, how, how much it's going to take to get to the nearest mountain? There's a desert in between. There's a sea in between. There's not enough water, not enough food. How in the world are you going to get us from Egypt to a mountain where we can worship you? And on the third day, the third new moon after the people of Israel, third month, the people of God were brought to a mountain. I have redeemed you. God communicates that his primary objective is redemption by fulfilling that promise. And he communicates that his primary objective is redemption in the order in which it occurs. It's only after he brings them out of Egypt to the foot of the mountain that he gives them the law. Now, they basically knew by the imprint of their consciences what was right and wrong, but he now encodes the law and the Ten Commandments, but he does not do it until after he has redeemed them from Egypt. You see, it's not that he's keeping a secret, but he wants them and us to understand the order. 
If he had given them the tablets of the law while they were still in Egypt, they would get the impression, they might get the impression, you know, if we keep every one of these commandments, we might just get out of here. God might reward us by redeeming us. But he redeems them first. He redeems them when they didn't want it. He redeems them when they rebelled against it. He redeems them when they were still clinging to some of their idols. He redeems them when they complained at the Red Sea. He, can, he redeems them when they, they complained about water. He redeems them when they blasphemed. He re- redeems them when they rebelled. He redeems them. And once he has redeemed them and brought them to the foot of the mountain, he gives them the law so that life would go well with them in response to that redemption. We only start repeating the Ten Commandments after we've repeated the preface. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's all about redemption. We respond to that redemption. And look, it gets... This is not just the act of redemption, a a legal act of taking your sins away. This is an act of love. He loved them out of Egypt. Look at the four things that characterize it. It says he fought for them, he carried them, he treasured them, he crowned them. He does the same four things for us. He fought for them. He said, I took you out of Egypt and I did This, I I redeemed you, I fought for you, I brought you out in their eyes. I remember when we studied the plagues, we didn't just talk talk about blood and gnats and flies and so forth. Every time we studied a plague, we asked, what is the God being exposed here who is ineffective in taking care of the Egyptians? We studied the the Nile turning to blood. We looked at the god Kanum, who's supposed to be the guardian of the Nile. He's supposed to keep it pure and keep it productive. He didn't do his job. When we we talked about the plague of frogs that were multiplied, we talked about the goddess Heket, who is supposed to be the the goddess of fertility, a lovely goddess with a, a frog's head. And there's a lot of good she did. It was God who multiplied the frogs, and it was God who killed all the frogs. God was demonstrating that what what he was really battling is not merely human oppression. He is battling the, the, the demonic powers behind the sin, behind the oppression. He says that very clearly in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. He says, when I brought you out of Egypt, and I only brought the plagues and the death of the firstborn, I brought... I brought destruction on their gods. We're in a spiritual battle with physical impact. We see sin everywhere. We see the, we see the results of Adam and Eve's sin and the introduction of sin into the brokenness of our creation. We see it in this pandemic In this virus, this is the result of the brokenness that came into our creation. We see it in the brokenness of our relationship, the brokenness of marriages. We see it in the brokenness of our health. We see it in the brokenness of society, of injustice and racism and totalitarianism and and anarchy. We see all of these as vestiges of sin empowered by spiritual forces. But we also see 
God fighting against them and winning the victory through history. It reminds us we're in this battle. If we're in a battle, we've got to remember the rules of engagement set out by our commander. We have one commander, Jesus Christ. And that commander gives us our marching orders. And we must be careful and bold to engage in the battle with His words, using His words of Scripture, not words that are dictated to us by major media sources or social media. We must use His words, biblical words. We must remember that, the, that, um, that, that He's given us the weapons to use. He's given us the weapons of prayer by which nations have been changed. He's given us the weapon of evangelism. He's given us the weapon of counterintuitive love. And he's given us each other. And it reminds us that the enemy is, are those spiritual forces. We are not the enemy. We must never fight one another. Our backs need to be toward each other so that we are fighting the enemy on the outside and finding our strength from one another. We must demonstrate in the church of Jesus Christ a more compelling vision than the world presents. It's not that we, 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 we are not known for what we are against. We must be known for what we are for. And we are for love that is centered in Jesus Christ, love that is greater than color, love that is greater than political party, love that is greater than the world knows that calls one another brother, sister, father, mother. God has proven his love toward us in the way he fights for us and fights through us. God is proving his love toward us in the way he carries us. I carried you on eagle's wings, he said. I just learned this week that when a baby eagle is nudged out of the nest learning to fly, if he doesn't succeed, his mother doesn't say, that's too bad. I've got another one. He goes, she goes down, swoops, swoops him up on her, on her wings, carries him back into the eyrie. A friend of mine had a, a hawk, a baby hawk, land on her porch this week, and the expert she called said, it's okay. Mom and dad are nearby. They're going to make sure that that little hawk is okay. This is the image that we have here. God swoops under. God is the one who carries us, but he carries us not as an end in itself. He carries us that he might bring us close to himself. The choir saying, come to me. Jesus says, Jesus doesn't say, just come over to the right side. He says, come to me. And I will provide your nurture and your protection and your haven He's always done it through history. He gave, he gave Noah and his family the ark. He gave the people in Egypt Goshen, and he gives us the church. So what is the devil's strategy? The devil's strategy is if I can just get a wedge in that church. I know what Jesus has promised. He says he's promised that the church is going to prevail against the gates of hell. So I have no ultimate hope of, of conquering the church, but I can hinder the work of the church by getting schism in there, by getting some division, by getting a foothold. We must not allow it. We're carried. In response to that love, we obey. We are treasured. Now I know some of you 
have a tendency to read the Bible as I can have a tendency at times as well, and that is to camp on the word if. If, it says in verse 5, now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. And so all you hear is the word if. You say, I'll never be the Lord's treasured possession because I can never obey Him fully. I'll always be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of I'll never be his favored child. But you don't understand the conditionality of the covenant in the Bible. As my Old Testament professor used to say, God saves by works. God saves by merit. It's just not your works or your merit. It's the works and the merit of Christ applied to you. God's condition of the covenant, they're genuine, but they are, they are unconditional because they're rooted in His grace. If is not a word of condition. If is a word of indication. You prove that you are His treasured people drawn out of the world, out of the world by obedience that He works through you. It doesn't say that you are free to do whatever you want to. It doesn't mean that you're going to be, that you're saved no matter what you do. It is instead the proof that Christ lives in you. The proof is his obedient trajectory of your life. Not a perfect obedience, but a progressive sanctification. You are treasured by him. And then you are crowned. He says, I've made you not just kings, not just priests, but a kingdom of priests. In that way, he's restoring our humanity. Adam and Eve were made uh, as kings and priests in the garden. Take dominion of the earth. Steward it. It doesn't mean to treat it harshly. It means to unpack its potential as a steward, as a vicegerent of a good God. We fell, we became slaves instead of those kings. And when God renews the covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm making you a king, I'm making Sarah a queen. I'm gonna make princes and princesses through you. I am giving you dignity, the dignity of causality. By your prayers, kingdoms will be changed, lives will be changed. By the sharing of the gospel, well, uh, structures can be changed. I'm giving you authority. We must not live as victims. We must not live as those who allow others to, to uh, create our identities. Our identity is that we are united to Christ. He makes us, therefore, sons and daughters of God. He makes us kings and priests. We have a lot of work to do, and we do it with His authority. We don't allow, we, if, if we are guilty of something, then we repent of it and we turn right back to the battle. If we're not guilty of an accusation, then we're, we're not guilty of it. But we don't wallow in guilt even if we are guilty. We don't wallow in it. We, are, we, we, are, we thank the Lord for exposing our sin and then we turn back to the Lord and say, now put me back to work. 
We step into need. To become aware of a need is not to be debilitated by guilt for it. It's to become aware of it and to step into it by faith and say, I have no idea what to do, but I'm going to step into it by faith and trust that you, the one who has all the resources at the right hand of the Father, will bring those resources to bear through me. One of my colleagues in previous church whose responsibility was ministering in the inner city would, would, would step into uh, meetings and he would say, I, I want you to know I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do. We're, this is all new to us. But here I want to introduce you to my friend I've brought along with me today. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells me, so I've just showed up with him and we're going to let's wait and see what the Lord brings about. We're crowned. Because we are redeemed, we respond in counterintuitive love, and then more quickly we look at Revelation in verses 9 through 13 as a gift. And I say more quickly because we'll look at it more extensively in, in the days to come, in studies to come. But I, will see, I want you to see these three characteristics of the gracious revelation that God gives us. It is personal. It is confirmed and it is holy. God says in verses 9 and following, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then this covenant follows a pattern, a pattern that scholars have observed in ancient Near Eastern treaties. When I was in school, we learned them as the suzerainty treaties. I mean, suzerain is just a the head potentate is the, is, the, is the despotic ruler, the one who comes in and takes over a country. And those, those treaties, those, those covenants follow a pattern. There's a preamble where he says, I'm the greatest, and here I am, here is my name. And then there's a historical prologue, and let me remind you of all that I've done to you and how great I am and how my armies conquered you. And then there he appeals to witnesses, usually of, of pagan gods. And uh, then there's stipulations. This is what you're supposed to do what you're not supposed to do. And if you do them, I'll bless you. If you don't do them, I'll curse you. And God's covenants follow those patterns, but in a profoundly different way. He has a preamble too. I am God, but I am the God who has redeemed you. Yes, I am God who has taken you to myself that you would be my people, my nation, but I've done it in a beautiful and tender and loving way that life would go well with you. And here are my stipulations. Here, here's the things I want you to do so that you'll be blessed, so that you will experience shalom. And, and you will be blessed. But if you rebel against me, you bring curses on yourself. There's one way that is, it is totally unique. One characteristic of God's covenant with His people is totally unique. It is that there is no record of an ancient Near Eastern treaty between a God and people. Gods were too good to deal with people. But here our God, in a personal way, has humbled Himself to come down and say, I'm going to make you promises. I don't owe you anything, but I'm going to make you promises, and, I, and I'm going to give you a way to live. And furthermore, he says he does, he does appeal to witnesses. He just doesn't have any gods to appeal to because there is no other God. 
And, and so he says, I, here's what, here are the witnesses. You are the witnesses. I'm going to, I'm going to confirm my promises to you in such a way that all five of your senses will be engaged. You're going to feel the mountain shake. You're going to see the dark sky. God humbles himself to say, I'm making you promises, and I want you to be so convinced of them, I'm going to give you objective sensory signs by which you will be confirmed. And you have to know this. We'll talk more about it in coming in coming studies, but every book of the Bible, every book you have in the Bible is confirmed to be God's Word because it has been confirmed in a miraculous way to our senses in history. It's personal, it's confirmed, and it's holy. God consecrates Himself to give himself to your redemption. So much so, remember when he made the covenant with Abraham, he said, I want you to, I want you to, to cut a bunch of animals in half. And uh, he gave him a dream. And, and in this dream, he's cutting the animals in half. And then we're going we're gonna to walk through them. And the, the, the implication was that whoever breaks the covenant is going to be cut, in, cut asunder like one of these animals. The problem is we're the only ones who've broken the covenant. The gospel is that God is the only one who brought the judgment on himself, cut himself from himself. This is the revelation that should move us to love. And then we respond with consecration. Not It's not saying that sex is is evil. He's not saying that, that you can only wear certain clothes, not even that you can only wear clean clothes. He's just, he's just saying, in response to my love, I want you to put me first above every material thing and above every desire. The first love of God the Father does that to you. It produces that kind of response. A better yes instead of just no. Last week, by your generosity, I was able to go visit my father, who lives two hours away from here in a nursing home. Uh, thank you for letting me off that week, even though you didn't really have a decision in it. But I thank you anyway, letting me uh, go away. And I, I was able to see my dad. And it was a unique time to be able to see my dad because... One of the one of the um, one of the uh, uh, professionals in the nursing home volunteered to come in on her day off. She said, "George, if you'll come over, I'll, I'll come in on my day off, and I'll push him up to a glass door like this, and I'll give him my phone, and then you two can talk through the glass." It's been a long time since I've been with my dad near Father's Day. It was such a great blessing. And we were able to visit that way for about an hour till he fell asleep, and then the visit was obviously over. But I thought a lot about my dad going over, coming back. He is the most important man in my life. 
He's taught me how to be a man. He's taught me how to be a godly man. I'm nearly, not nearly as godly as he is, but he, I saw him converted. I saw the change in his life. I saw his, his change in his approach to business. I saw he taught me how to, to honor women, how to love children, how to be faithful in, in keeping commitments, how to work hard, how to, to treat others with dignity regardless of their ethnicity or their socioeconomic background. He's taught me how to be a man, a godly man. And I also remember it as we were visiting a time that I've probably told you about, but just pretend like you've never heard it before. When I it was powerfully impressed on me what disobedience to him really meant. My dad loved mowing grass. He loved mowing grass with his special lawnmower. It was ruby red. And every time he finished mowing the grass, he would wash it. He would even wax it. And then he would let it dry before he pulled it into the garage. There'd be no rust on it. Well, he knew that he mowed the grass early in the morning. He knew it was going to rain that afternoon. So he said to me as I was heading out to school, he said, I want you to pull the, 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 the lawnmower in this afternoon when you get home from school so it doesn't get rained on. I said, yeah, I'll do it. Never thought about it again. Came home from school, grabbed a box of cookies and a Coke, plunged myself down on the couch to watch a baseball game. Never thought about it again. The rainstorm starts. It's driving. It's pounding against the window. I think, man, I'm so glad to be inside and out of the rain. Never thought about the lawnmower until I heard it crank. And then I wished I had choked on my cookies. I hear the back door open. I hear squish, squish, squish across the tile floor. My dad, wetter than a drowned rat, appears in the door and said, I ask you to do one thing. And then he turned around and left. I would have preferred that he beat me with a razor strap than to see that disappointment. I begged him, let me push the lawnmower out again. Let me get wet and drive it back in. No, I don't want the lawnmower wet. And I resolved then I would never again willfully disobey him. Now, I unwillfully disobeyed him. And I did a lot of dumb things that disappointed him. But I never again wanted to see that look of disappointment on his face thought about that as we were visiting through the glass the blessing of being just that close to him the warmth of that love and I felt it in my heart if I thought if he told me to go through that glass I would go through that glass for him that says absolutely nothing about the kind of son I am it says everything about the kind of dad he was and is. And that's the essence of the Christian life. It's not do's and don'ts. It's especially not don'ts. It is in response to the love of God the Father demonstrated absolutely in the sacrifice of his precious son.
that we might be his sons and daughters. It's a more compelling vision than anyone being, than any other being offered in the culture. It's not just good news, it's the best news. It's the only news. And may God help us to demonstrate it in a compelling and healing way as we pursue shalom with counterintuitive love in response to the love of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for obeying your Father coming to provide the all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing the love of the Father to us. Help us to live in such a way that others are compelled to come to the same gospel. Heal our church. Heal our city. Heal our nation. Heal our world. Thy kingdom come. In Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.